Chapter 4 A year went by. It tried to make its short life a just one by bringing him both a loss and a gain. His father died and his son was born. Following the ancient custom, the infant was placed on the floor and the household waited for its father's decision. Whether it was really his and should get his love and protection, or whether it should be left on a hilltop for the eagles or whoever wanted a foster son. Even if he had been capable of choosing the hilltop, he would not have done so in this case, for he saw with enormous satisfaction that the baby had the face, and so perchance the nature too, of its dead grandfather. So he gave them the same name, Eric. Whatever good fortune was in the name would remain in the family. With an exact plan already in his mind for the kind of man his son should be, he picked him up from the floor, wrapped him in his cloak, and sprinkled him with water. Helga and the other women gave a relieved sigh when they saw the infant's legitimacy thus established. It had rights now under the law, and if anyone killed it after this, it would be murder. Now he had a chance to gratify a wish that everyone has, to live all over again through the person of his son, with no mistakes this time. He waited eagerly as the baby grew to consciousness, to understanding, to speech. He waited to see what he would notice, and pounced upon it to be the first to tell him what it really was, what to look for in it, how it should be thought about. And on the day when little Eric was four years old, he found himself telling him that the sky rests on the shoulders of four dwarfs, whose names are Nordri, Sudri, Ostri, and Westri. He did not always walk alone now. There were rambles together over the hills, when he told young Eric tales he had heard from old Eric, of the mountains that are really giants, of the sea and raiding, and of Odin and Thor and Frey. Yes, and at last one day, of Frey's beautiful sister Freya, giver of love, most gently born of the gods, wearer of the flaming necklace, weeper of gold. She has six cats, has Freya, that draw the golden wagon in which she rides. It comes toward you suddenly, on a lonely road, and the man who sees it is so bemused that he cannot step aside, but lets the goddess ride over him. He bears the marks of that forever, though he comes to think it was an illusion, a dream that led to nothing. But it was not for nothing. And he put his arm tightly about little Eric's shoulder, while with his other hand he showed him how to get a firm grip on a sword. Sometimes he had to be away from Eric, at sea, raiding or trading, under the command of some great sea king. He was not yet a sea king himself, but he hoped in his heart he would still be, and that Eric would be too. In the meantime, he learned the things a sea king had to do, and the manner of their doing. On one of the trips, 
he relearned something that was both necessary and dreadful. It was a raiding trip that took them along one of the great Russian rivers as far as Hungary. There, they captured a number of slaves, among them a man who became his property, and whom he called Turker, because everything south of Sweden was known as Turkey. The thing that was necessary was slavery, for the bonders knew no other way of getting the hard work of a farmstead done. The dreadful side of it was the way Turker was captured. Turker did not see them as they approached. He was occupied in teaching a little boy, his own little boy, as could be seen by the likeness between them, to sail a boat in a stream. Eric's father was sent to engage him in talk, while the others were to steal up behind him. He did as he was bid, since he was new to slave-catching and did not want to set his judgment against theirs, but he did not like the part of it that he was set to do. When he drew nearer to Turker, he saw that the man and his son were different from Icelanders and other northern people he had seen. They were undersized, both of them, with keen little black eyes that reminded him of birds, and long black hair. But they were father and son too, and that made them seem to have an unpleasant kinship with himself and Eric. He went ahead with what had been agreed upon, pretending to Turker that he was a traitor. It was pitifully easy to do, because Turker really was a traitor, and understood the Norse tongue. I have a son at home, said Eric's father, about the same age as yours. He patted the little fellow on the head and cringed inwardly at the friendly smile he received. His name is Eric, he added, in order to keep on speaking, and, for the same reason, asked, What is your boy's name? Atil. The small owner of the name showed a smug pleasure in hearing it pronounced. He is named, his father explained, after our ancient hero, King Atil the Great. A very fine name, the other father heard himself say admiringly, and I'm sure he will live up to it. This evoked an enthusiastic flood of anecdotes about young Attil's attainments. How he could already ride a horse as well as most men, recite poetry so that the neighbors marveled, and do countless other wonders beyond his years. Now he has his heart set on learning to sail a boat. No man who dreamed of being a sea king could resist that. He plucked the little vessel out of the water, showed Attil how to adjust its sails, set it float again, and then all three of them lay on their stomachs blowing at it, as if they were the wind. All the while, Eric's father felt as if he were in a nightmare, trapping himself. So much did he and Turker and their two sons seem ghosts of each other. As his companions closed in, Turker had reached the point of inviting him to be their house guest. He almost warned Turker of his danger, but could not bring himself to betray his own countrymen. Then it was too late. They had Turker, 
who was screaming to his little boy to run. Run! Run! The boy got away, but they dragged Turker to the ship and were away before the alarm spread. Turker took his thraldom to heart, seeming unable to accept it as other captives had managed to do. It especially grieved him when they cut his long hair, cropping it close, as thralls had to wear it to mark them off from their masters. He seemed to have been proud of it, and touched the short strands gingerly, as if in pain. When he was asked any questions, he refused to answer or speak at all, although they knew he understood Norse from the way he had spoken with Eric's father. All the way to Iceland, he was silent, evidently thinking of what he was leaving and weeping like a woman. That was a great joke, because when you were captured, you naturally abandoned your old ties and accepted those of the man who owned you. It was only after they were in Iceland and had come to the farmstead that he became less sad. His face even lighted up with a kind of desperate pleasure. That happened when he first saw Eric. He grew very excited and spoke in the Turkish tongue, which no one understood. But they could see that Eric reminded him of his own little son. He and Eric became friends at once, which was a great satisfaction to Eric's father, who felt the boy would be in sympathetic hands when he was away. The task which he assigned to Turker was to be Eric's companion and guard. From then on, he felt safe in going away and leaving his son with Turker. It was like remaining with Eric himself, even when sailing a distant sea. For he never got over the notion that he and his thrall were exactly alike in everything that mattered. Each time he returned, he had an impulse to clasp Turker's hand in his own and hail him as a true, dear friend. But he never did. His hand refused to obey him and would not meet Turker's. Odin had told, once and forever, what the life of a thrall should be in the station in which it had pleased the gods to place him, and an ancient sibyl wrote it down clearly and to be observed. His name shall be Thrall, his work be hard, his body bent, his clothing poor. He lives like a thrall, lifts heavy loads, eats what is left sleeps where he can. His wife is a thrall, his children too. They tend the swine, they are despised. Turker would not have grasped his master's preferred hand, even if it could have moved itself toward him. The slave's pride was more terrible than the master's, since it was a sole remaining possession and therefore to be clung to the more fiercely. Turker would have bowed, smiling depreciatingly, as if unworthy of such an honor, but he would not have extended his own hand, and any bonder who saw it happen would have approved of how well he knew his place in the face of such generous condescension. Turker's hunger for the affection of the little boy who resembled his own 
was misleading to freemen who had no way of understanding a thrall. They mistook his submissive manner for resignation to his lot, and knew nothing of his hatred for his captors, which was the more poisonous because it had to be hidden. Four years more marched by, and the world was marching with them, along a path that could not be barred. History was refusing to stand still, whether or not a man wanted to relive his past. Things were trying to turn into other things. News of it was trying to be heard. The Guardian Sea let an occasional ship steal in, which, amid an innocent cargo, carried rumors of a change, a change, a change. Despite what anybody could do, it was ever creeping nearer, on and on, now driven back, now advancing again, threatening to be upon them at last. King Harold Bluetooth had tried to bring Christian bishops into Norway, but Earl Hakon killed him and put everything back the way it was, for which he was affectionately called Hakon the Good. For a while, the ancient ways resumed their comforting sway. Then the evil came again. King Olaf, who was thought dead, unaccountably returned with an armed host, and with it, a Christian priest beside him who carried a sword and used it, too. Together, they hunted the good Hakon to a filthy death in a pit beneath a pigsty where he was hiding. Now, Olaf ruled Norway as a baptized Christian, followed to the font by men with neither shame nor honor. They said he ruled by a divine right. Divine, by the word of a strange divinity, not chosen by bonders equal to himself. There was to be no choosing ever again in Norway. Olaf was to be followed to the throne by his sons, divine as himself, whatever they were like, and there they would sit forever and ever while the past and its heroes were forgotten. Strangest of all was the readiness with which the coming change was being accepted. It would change, many said, and behaved as if it already had. They began neglecting the old gods or sacrificing before them because they thought it was a harmless precaution, no longer because of a deep belief in their power. This weakening of fervor may have been the gods' own fault, for they were no longer sustaining Iceland as they should. The land was too poor to bear all it was needed, and living by sea raids was too uncertain, too perilous, too difficult. A new way to get things done had to be found, and the old gods were keeping the old ways going. Therefore, men knew in their hearts that the old gods must go, though habit made them put off saying so. Some stood to gain by the change, and some to lose, which is the greatest difference of interest that is possible. Long before these two factions saw that they were heading towards open conflict, or even that they were too, 
the need to describe them caused old words to take on new meanings. One of these, the word Christian, had long meant a follower of Christ. Now it was beginning to mean one who lived in the new walled towns of Europe that were built around a castle and a church, and who served the king and the bishop. The other word, heathen, had meant one who lived outside the town, on the heath. But now it meant one who clung to the old beliefs that the towns were banishing. The heathen who thought he had married a goddess walked home one evening in gloomy thought. Could it be that the death of Freya and all the company of the gods, foretold in the old poems, was at hand? Then burns the world, and all the Aesir bright descend with it to everlasting night. But there was to have been great recompense, a last titanic battle in which Thor and the mightiest of serpents slay each other, while Vithar steps between the open jaws of the wolf giant, tears the monster apart, and rips from his belly the flaming sun he has swallowed. There was not to have been such a quiet, unresisting, sick ending to all that grandeur. No, this was surely not the great doom. He walked home by a roundabout way to be no longer alone, past a temple where they were sacrificing a bull to Njord because a ship had got in safely. He found himself looking strangely at the building with an unaccustomed emotion which he suddenly realized was prophecy. The temple would soon not be there to be looked at. He could see it in flames. Angrily, he shook this impossibility out of his head. It was a long time before he got home. He was surprised to see his wife come out to meet him, which once she had done as a pleasant habit. Now, he feared that something was the matter perhaps with their son, and he hastened towards her. But it was news that brought her out. She was bubbling and eager with it and poured it over him like a cascade. So delighted was she, and so little did she understand him, that she thought he would be as pleased and excited as herself. A priest, the king of Norway's own priest, she emphasized with satisfaction has come to live with us. He was startled, shocked, and silent, remembering who he had once thought she was. He is not like what they say of Christians, a huge, handsome man with fierce, proud eyes, like an eagle. He carries a sword. Oh, you will like him. Never, never. A sorcerer, an enemy beneath his roof. And by the king's wish, he makes our home his own. Think, think what an honor. From here, he says he will spread the word. You know, the word. In the beginning, he says, there was the word. And God, his God, spoke. And now everyone, everyone in Norway, all the earls, that is. The king asks us to set an example. The priest has already been speaking to Eric. She noticed her husband's stern, angry face as he turned abruptly from her to go searching for their son. 
Her voice died down as she tried to call after him that the priest's name was Theobrand. Oh, such a splendid man! Little Eric was by the brook with Turker, sailing his boat, when his father found him, knelt beside him and suddenly, almost roughly, snatched him to his side. There are things I must tell you, now, before it is too late. You are to listen and remember, as I did, and my father, and his father, and as your children shall. He dismissed Turker sharply, meaning to deal with him later for having let the priest come near Eric. Then he turned to the difficult problem at hand. Articles of faith. He must tell them to his son well and quickly, this moment, before a poisoned mist was spread about his mind. Now. He began with the tale of the beginning of things and how the world was created by his gods. The word? The word. What did it mean? That in the beginning was the word. It sounded like a sorcerer's incantation. He told the story as he had often heard it rhymed, and the substance of it was this. At first there was only fire and ice. They dwelt apart, each in its own vast land. Between there lay a measureless, awful gap in which there was nothing at all, except that now and again sparks would fly across from fire home and hiss against the ice, beginning the great war that was to go on forever. The only living thing was a mighty cow that roamed the dead ice world, stubbornly clinging to life by licking the salty rime from the frozen surface. On the first of the first three days, her great tongue melted the ice away until an immense head was revealed. The second day, she released the giant's shoulders, and on the third, his body. He stood erect, this son of cold and death, rushed upon his enemy the sun and ravished her. From that union was born the race of giants, who bring all that is ill and who like the ice and the snow from which they stem, take strange forms. But three other sons were born too, more like their mother, three shining gods who looked once upon their father, hated him, and killed him. They threw his body into the gap in which there had been nothing, and he filled it. From his carcass they made this world. The rivers are his blood, the sky his skull. They hurled his brain up into the air and it turned into clouds. Through his heart they planted a great ash tree whose roots are in hell and whose topmost branches. He did not finish the story, for his wife had come from the house and snatched the boy towards her as though to protect him. A startling thing which she had never dared before. Beside her was the priest, handsome and huge indeed, and with hand on sword. Then, remembering he was a man of God, he used words instead. There was no ash tree, he cried angrily, but an apple tree from which we were forbidden to eat, and for the sin of disobeying. 
little Eric's world was rocking to hear his father contradicted. The latter knew it and felt he must redeem himself. His hand started for his sword, but he desisted when he saw his wife's face, more astonished than alarmed. He remembered that the priest, whatever he might be, was yet his guest and therefore sacred. Thor's breath began to blow and make ripples on the brook. He cooled his head. Then he noticed, with a returning feeling of sanity, that ash trees were proving him right by growing there, while the stony ground beneath them gave lie to the story which the priest was telling of a garden where fruits grew in original abundance in soil that needed no plow.